Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. It has been a busy couple of weeks in the transatlantic community with all of the summits. And over the next few episodes of Brussels Sprouts, we'll be talking about what has happened. We'll digest it all and talk about where things are likely to go from here. Uh, And we're going to start today on the U.S.-Russia relationship As we all know, on January 16th, Joe Biden met with Russian President Putin in what turned out to be, I would say, a relatively constructive summit, especially given the low expectations that we all had ahead of it. Um, President Biden did what he said he came to do, which was to communicate directly uh, and to have an open line of communication with President Putin. Uh, He wanted to articulate U.S. priorities and values and to discuss areas of engagement And of course, you know, one of the big deliverables, and I I do think it's an important one, is the agreement to launch the arms control and strategic stability talks, um, which could possibly also include cyber issues. But I would say there are still really a lot of questions about where U.S.-Russia relations will go from here. I was really notable at one moment, you know, as President Biden was leaving his presser, the way he got so animated by the question from the CNN reporter about whether or not he was confident that Putin would change his behavior, uh, which I think was quite telling. You know, we saw Putin entirely deny Russia's role in the cyber attacks against U.S. institutions, which calls into question how productive the cyber agenda can really be. Um, and we also saw President Biden put democracy and human rights front and center of his agenda. Biden saying that democracy will always be on the table. And of course, that comes against the backdrop of rising repression in Russia, Um, And so that is likely to be a continuing source of tension in the relationship and a point of contention. So to talk about all of this, um, the summit developments in Russia, the rising repression and attacks on opposition in civil society and what that might mean for U.S.-Russia relations, we're really excited to welcome um, Leonid Volkov, who is chief of staff for Alexei Navalny. So Leonid, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to talk to you today. And yeah, let's jump into your questions. Let's do it. And before we jump right in, I always like to give a little bit of a bio. So if you'll indulge me for a second, um, for our listeners, Leonid Volkov is, as I said, chief of staff for Alexei Navalny. He was his campaign manager for the 2013 mayoral campaign in Moscow, as well as um, and helped with his attempt to get registered for the 2018 presidential election in Russia. Uh, In 2017, Leonid created the network of regional offices for Alexei Navalny's political movement, which expanded to over 40 of Russia's largest cities, and he managed that network before it was declared an extremist organization um, just, what, a couple of weeks ago um, and dissolved now here in 2021. So, okay, welcome again. Let's jump in and um, maybe, you know, to use the summit as a hook. Uh, I wonder if you could tell our listeners um, how the Russian media has reacted and responded and and digested the summit. What's what are what have what have been the key narratives in in Moscow or in Russia really? Uh, you know, I mean, if we talk about Russian media, we have first of all to distinguish um, between two sorts of them. So there is the government-controlled media, the Kremlin propaganda, and the relatively few. Uh, independent media, most of them now based not in Russia, such as uh, Latvia-based Medusa and 
some others. So for the Kremlin media, uh, surprisingly, there is not so much of a coverage. They got what they wanted, like the picture, like, okay, Putin staying close with Biden, shaking hands. The picture, they got it. It helps uh, to for their message. It, it fits into their message of like Putin being regarded as an important international player and so on. But other than that, nothing. And I didn't know. That, that's because they were not yet briefed on how they should cover the summit or because they just uh, do not vote didn't want to go any further. Because, I mean, once again, they got what they wanted. Why did Putin need this summit so desperately? Because he has an upcoming collection since just three months. And despite the fact that Putin has built, well, probably the most efficient propaganda machine in the world, even the best propaganda needs some fuel. So, and it has, he has to feed his propaganda machine with something. Now, he can't feed it with domestic success anymore because, I mean, even with the most sophisticated propaganda, you can't actually persuade people uh, that their life is good if it isn't. And well, with the stagnation uh, of economy, with the average household income decreasing for eight years in a row now, you it's really a hard sell, uh, like any kind of like domestic uh, economic uh, success. So they have to use foreign policy as a fuel to make their propaganda machine run. And that's why this summit was so important. So the core message was even before summit, like Putin is important, Putin is well regarded. He is a major international player. So everyone wants to talk to, to him. He's admitted like to the room where it happens. So that, that's why Putin is so great. They got it. One picture was enough. Why bother and go into detail? Uh, now, the independent media, they don't have a lot of information, so it looks like they still try to figure out what it was. Because, well, the, the, the statements were quite uh, sparse, and <clears throat> they don't really know what was the outcome. We still don't know like what happened be behind closed doors there. Uh, of course, Many independent media, like all of independent media, not only in Russia, but also abroad, concentrated on Putin's remarks on Navalny uh, in his final like press uh, conference. Well, because they were scandalous, because they were just blatant lies, uh, very, mm, very bold. So, I mean, everyone is asking the question, if Putin is really so badly informed, or if what or it was such a posture like look i could say that two two times two equals 17 and that's fine so if i say so it is 17 and everyone is dismissed and i mean putin did not talk to to international press for for a couple of years uh well because of covid and because just there was no reason so and there is a lot of speculation if actually it's well a sign of putin's weakness that he kind of well doesn't know how to deal with the independent press because he's so used to uh, deal with his uh, own press where he really could say whatever he wants and it's okay or he's so uh, so 
so so sure so it's so so if it's not a sign of weakness but a sign of strength so okay so i'm i'm okay i'm satisfied with the outcome of the meeting and i could do whatever i want so this is kind of the debate in russian independent media no one knows for sure but i would say they they cover it uh, through this optics now one last thing actually of course like many people on russian political internet like discuss all these remarks about Navalny and many people know this that it was Putin's and Kremlin's strongest intention before the summit not to talk about Navalny they actually denied uh, the fact that Navalny will be on the agenda clearly he was and human rights in Russia and uh, repression against the opposition clearly were brought up by President Biden uh quite a lot and they became also the main topic of the post uh summit uh press uh press events so at least in this regard well putin failed to achieve his uh summit goals it looks like so my interpretation is that biden kind of grilled him a little bit on like at least a little bit on human rights and uh and, and all these kinds of agenda this make made putin angry and that's why he uh, replied in such a scandalous way to, to the questions of the press after the summit. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for appearing on our show, just to tell our listeners that uh, you just got off an airplane from the, the US. You have a transatlantic flight and uh, you're now at home, um, and uh, you're you're probably very tired. So thank you for for doing this. Let me ask you, um, how is morale with you and your organization with M. Navalny? I think a lot of our listeners want to just get a feel for Navalny's health and and your health and the health of the organization and uh, and um, and and how you all are feeling. Uh, what what's the word within your your group? And with Navalny particularly? Uh, well, our morale is strong, and so is Alexei's. And that's not that's not just, just a posture. It's it's because we developed a tactical uh, well our morale is strong. <coughs> Sorry. Our morale is strong, and so is Navalny's. And it's not a posture. It's because, actually, we developed such a tactical approach to keep our morale strong, which I call zoom out. So many bad things happen. If you follow Russian politics, it actually really looks like uh, war scene reports. This guy was arrested, this guy was arrested, this guy was assassinated, this guy was forced to leave the country, this is this one is now into exile, this organization has had to shut down, uh, new laws introduced which would uh, uh, impose, like, I don't know, 10 years imprisonment penalty for, for this and this and this and that, and so on. So, uh, every day brings us bad news. And if we zoom in, into this bad news, we could only feel very stressed. And of, co of course, it doesn't help to exercise politics in Russia or around or about Russia. See so now, if we zoom out a little bit and we see that we started 10 years ago uh, as a political movement with something like 50,000 supporters, 
and now we have many millions. That last time Alexei Navalny was allowed to be on the ballot, he got, well, 28% of the votes in Moscow, among Moscow voters, and this is the reason why he never was admitted to be on the ballot in Russia anymore. But even Navalny supporters managed to become popular. And last year in regional elections, our regional coordinators, the, the leaders of our regional political organizations, got elected into the city councils of their respective city cities all throughout Russia, getting like 40, 45 percent of, of popular vote in their districts, being labeled as members of Navalny organization, regional leaders of Navalny organization, being labeled as foreign agents, and still they got like 45% of votes and got elected in, in their urban areas, in just very ordinary urban areas of very ordinary Russian cities. So now that's why they had to pass the law this year, which disenfranchises anyone associated with our organization from being on the ballot, even for a village council. Anyone who not only been a member of our organization, but in any form supported it, donated to it, is now not allowed to appear on the ballot for five years from now. Well, this doesn't denote that Kremlin is in full control of the situation. It's, it, it only proves that Kremlin really feels very stressed and really feels a lot of threat that our organization actually poses to him. We know that our daily reach is now like between seven, eight million people. So a 150-fold growth in 10 years, so comparable to Tesla and Bitcoin, whatever. So, I mean, it's, and this in all this very toxic uh, environment. We know that among quarters under 30, Navalny is doing better in the polls than Putin, despite the fact that Putin sits in Kremlin, Navalny sits in prison. So if we zoom out a little bit and we consider the whole ways that we were able to walk in the last 10 years, growing from a small uh, group of activists to the largest political movement uh, in the country with millions of supporters, with hundreds of thousands of donors, running completely on, on crowdfunding, being able to uh, crowdfund like, um, well, 30, around 25, 30 million rubles a month to, to support our organization to run all regional offices. This is actually quite an impressive story. And the trend is good for us. The trend is positive. The population, well, there is, a gen, uh, there is an ongoing generational change. And Putin could do nothing to become like popular among arriving, new arriving young quarters. Putin can't do anything uh, against, uh, Putin can't do anything to tackle fundamental reasons for people's uh, dissent. He can't do anything with the economy. He is not able to relaunch economic growth for eight years in a row now. He can't do anything with the fact that people are just tired of him for, well, very natural reasons. He already, uh, for 22 years now, in power. Of course, it makes people uh, angry and tired, even of a very successful leader, but Putin is not uh, so successful. But most important, 
Putin can't do anything against corruption because it's the foundation of the system he's created. So, and if Putin decides to bulldoze away our regional offices, it will not help him to fight corruption, poverty, and so on. And this is one very one other very important, very important thing, single thing that happened in Russia over the span of the last two uh, of last 10 years when we started our activities, when the Anti-Corruption Foundation has been founded in 2011, less than 20%, if I'm not mistaken, 17% of Russians, Russian voters considered corruption to be a major economic issue, considered corruption to be, well, a major threat. Now, polls show that uh, 60% of Russian voters consider corruption the main issue, far above any other issue. So they now know that corruption is dangerous, that it steals their future, the future of their children. They are educated about it. And that's something that we managed to accomplish. That's, well, so now when the Anti-Corruption Foundation is formally dead, when it has been designated an extremist organization, it can no longer operate. We could say that, well, the main legacy of the Anti-Corruption Foundation and 10 years of its tremendous work is the dramatic change in perception of corruption among Russian voters. And it's a very fundamental factor because Putin could, couldn't do anything against it. So, for instance, Putin has run a very unpopular retirement age reform in Russia three years ago, which also caused massive protests. And I can imagine that if these protests were more massive, more successful, more dramatic, then at the end of the day, Putin could just consider reverting the retirement rate reform, just to be a little bit more popular, to gain something. So I can imagine he didn't do this, but it's it was possible. But this corruption it doesn't work this way. It's the main reason for a dissent. It's the, it's the main reason why people are unhappy with Putin, and he can't do anything with it because he builds a system that runs on corruption. So these fundamental factors will not be gone. We perfectly realize it. And of course, this makes us very optimistic and our moral high. And the same for Alexei. He knows it. Well, I, your, your optimism is is so impressive. And when you lay out the case like that, I can see why you would be optimistic about where things are headed. When you kind of lay out the case like that, it makes it makes really good sense. I mean, I think one important point that I just want to underscore that I think that you have said is, I would say a lot of people in the West are looking at the growing repression in Russia and are very focused on the September um, election and kind of thinking that the Kremlin is so focused on the election that it's increasing repression in the run-up to that, which it is. But I think your point is just so much bigger and broader than that, that at the end, you know, after 22 years in power, Putin has so little juice left in his tank. He has really nothing else to rely on, given all of the problems that are mounting. The unfortunate thing then is what it suggests is that a lot of this repression in the in the increasing pressure on opposition in civil society is probably here to stay because he really has no other uh, option to sustain himself in power. So kind of given that, where, you know, how, how does an opposition think about operating in such a closed and really dangerous 
context like Putin's Russia? How, you know, how, what, what, what is your goal as the opposition? Kind of how do you, how do you see yourself and what your goals are moving forward? Uh, well, we believe that our strengths have, has always been flexibility. So we actually managed to use very different formats in the past 10 years. We are who? We are a political party? Well, not. Technically not. Uh, we have filed for registration of a political party nine times and we were dec declined nine times. But of course, well, we are. We have we used to have regional offices, supporters, and so on. But are we also in body of investigative journalism? Definitely so. Are we also like a media holding? We are running like uh, two weekly news programs. Yes, we are. And we, we have huge coverage, like comparable with uh, state television, with just our like weekly uh, news streams on YouTube. Are we a human rights organization yes very much so our regional offices used to support like local activists uh, we have a lot of expertise in video production and in it and in election observation and in organizing protest rallies and in whatever so it's important like putin um, knows what we are doing he shuts opportunities here and there we explore what is left and use opportunities here and there to continue our operations. And this will happen once again now. So the, the, the decision uh, to shut down our organization was met in 2019. So in 2019, they uh, launched a huge criminal investigation. They alleged all our crowdfunding campaign to be a huge covert money laundering operation, <laughs> not, not a real crowdfunding. They have uh, seized all the equipment from our offices. They performed like 250 searches uh, in our offices and the dwellings of our employees. Uh, they have frozen all our bank accounts, over 400 bank accounts belonging to uh, organization and all its employees. So they did everything to make our further operations impossible. We did survive. We believe that actually this might uh, have brought them to the decision to take a next step. Like in summer 2019, they ordered the closure of our organization. They failed. So next year, next summer, they decided, well, okay, we have to do something else because uh, these things that we did didn't help. So, and that, that's probably how they decided that uh, to, to apply Navichok rather than uh, bank account arrests. So, and uh, well, 2021 uh, brought new challenges to us. Do we disappear? No. Do our supporters disappear? No. Do the fundamental reasons for the descent of Russia disappear? No. Of course, for instance, Putin made it very clear that no form of organized political protest uh, will be possible in the recent future. You can't anymore like schedule a protest rally, run a campaign uh, asking people to turn out as we used to do. Well, okay, it means that new rallies will be more like ad hoc, more spontaneous. Uh, they will be different. They will be probably more angry. Than, than the very peaceful rallies that we used to have. Putin kind of like a little bit pushed the things under the carpet. Doesn't help. 
as you know. <laughs> like it doesn't help with the dust. It it will not help with the political uh, dissent and with the fact that people are angry with him. Meanwhile, we'll find some other formats for our work, for anti-corruption investigations, for reaching out to people, for supporting local activists. Well, we used to support the local activists using our network of regional offices. We had to formally dissolve it. The people do not disappear. So we, we told our regional offices, you guys are now good to operate on your own. So if you want to continue as an independent regional organization, we'll share with you the your local regional part of our database of donors, database of supporters, database of volunteers and activists, and you could use it to build your own independent regional political organization. Many of our regional offices opted to do so, and I hope many of them will succeed. Well, we did give them the ponds with a lot of fish. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty sure they will be uh, able to, to survive uh, politically uh, because they don't start from a zero level. They actually start already as a well-established uh, political organization with many supporters. So Putin killed one enemy, our regional network, but hopefully he will now have to face like 20 new enemies, like strong regional political organizations, and so on. Our approach is well, very much opportunistic. We see what's possible, we do what's possible. We use the opportunities to create like more stress for them. Every election now is, of course, very stressful for Putin because he can't win anything. He already has all the money, all the power, all the political influence in the country. Uh, a political influence can't be larger than Putin's. So he finds himself in quite an uncomfortable situation, frankly, because he kind of has to go through this ritual. He has to do something that looks like an election without having any chance to win anything. It's, it's quite annoying. Like imagine, I mean, you already won all the chips and you have to play all in. Despite the fact that the risks are very moderate and very low, it's still a stressful situation. And we use people under stress tend to make, to make mistakes. And we try to use it. So in 2011, the Duma elections have become a point of consolidation for many um, <clears throat> opposition forces. And well, this actually led to mass rallies. The Moscow mayoral election of 2013, the Moscow city council election of 2019, and many other elections in Russia's recent history turned out to become like a huge stress for Kremlin and helped us to win like new supporters and so on. So I hope this upcoming election in three months will also be such a very stressful moment for Putin and will help us to, to win more support. Also because we have a strategy that, it's, that has a proven track record uh, that is very successful. So we applied our so-called smart voting, well, a tactical voting, already twice for the regional elections of 2019 and 2020. And in both cases, we were able to achieve a lot. Smart voting runs as following. In every district, 
we find a candidate, we try to designate a candidate who doesn't belong to the ruling party, to Putin's United Russia, and has the best chances to, to defeat the incumbent, to, to unseat uh, the deputy uh, who belongs to United Russia. No matter what their political affiliation, no matter if they like Navalny or not, the only, uh, the only crucial factor is if they are able to, uh, to become uh, a winner. So we endorse them, we ask our supporters to uh, vote, to, to cast a consolidated vote for this uh, candidate, and quite often we win. We were able to win around 20% of seats in regional parliaments in 2019, about 20% of seats in regional parliaments in uh, 2020, even if we win just 10% of seats in the new Duma, this will bring us well to 45 independents in the Duma, which is 45 more than we have now. So, <laughs> a, a significant gain. As I said, Putin can't win anything. The political situation can't become better for him. It only can become worse. Uh, so, and this will also contribute to the political turbulence, to the instability, to the uh, to, 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 to more dissent. And so, having said that, I don't pretend that Putin will have to leave Kremlin this year or next or next year. We know that, well, as a dictator, uh, he has still a lot of support, and he could rely on his law enforcement, security forces, uh, on the army, and soon. And it could happen that he will be able to last for quite a long time. Well, this strategy for our movement hasn't changed. We have to be the largest and best organized political force in the country by the moment when Putin will have to go for biological reasons, because of an elite conflict, because of some coup, or because of some like black swan type event like in like the Arab Spring of 2011. We don't know, but we know that when it happens, for whatever reason, we have to be there to be able to say, okay, now we demand for a peaceful transition for a competitive election. We're perfectly capable to run political campaigns. We're perfectly able to compete. That's the reason why we are not allowed to be on the ballot anymore. Bring us back to the ballot. We will get what we deserve. We don't want to get more votes than we deserve, but we, we know that we are able to, to do a lot, and this will bring uh, our country to a transition. This has been a strategy from the very beginning, like from 2011, and we actually, as we already discussed, went quite a few steps in this way, with probably many more steps still to be accomplished, but well, you need sometimes quite patience when dealing with dictators like Putin. Yeah, wow. That was really, um, thanks for sharing all of that. That was really just wonderful to listen to. I mean, I kind of a basic question, which is, you know, as, as repression is rising in Russia, you know, is there, a, is it something that people are talking about and attuned to? And I recognize, you know, that when you live in a repressive society, you can't kind of raise your hand and, or express that discontent because you risk drawing, you know, the, the wrath of the authorities. 
But when you just look around, I mean, even in the last year, it really has been remarkable, whether it's more and more surveillance and then these arrests after or preemptively before protests kind of nabbing people in their houses, whether it's kind of the closing space online, which I think is something that we all had said that Putin might be resistant to do, knowing that how much Russians enjoy at least having some space uh, online to, to have more open political discussions, that's increasingly going away. The foreign agents laws, the attacks on the media, labeling organizations like yours, the extremists. I mean, is how, how is this, how are people reacting and responding to this? And, I, and even if people aren't talking about it in the open, like what, you know, I don't know, what, what is the kind of the, the sense among Russians as they're watching their political space shrink? Well, uh, <clears throat> well, the sense among Russians is too broad of a definition. So Russia is a huge country. It's very diverse. Uh, there are at least two Russias uh, that are pretty much equal uh, in size. The Russia that follows television as a primary source of political news and information, and Russia that follows the internet as a primary source of information. And they, of course, have a very different perception of the reality, because the reality is that TV propaganda describes, well, differs very much from the from the real reality. So I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if the Russians of the television uh, are even aware of the fact of repression, but the Russians of the internet are human rights actually, and rule of law have be become the second most important issue for Russians after corruption, something that did also never happen. So actually, people started to recognize that we have very huge problem. And of course, the last wave of repressions was unprecedented. Uh, in fact, uh, when, uh, when they detained some 17,000 people, during the protest in January this year, this was effectively the largest wave of repression in our country since Stalin. This never happened in the Soviet times. Russia has now more political prisoners than Khrushchev and Brezhnev used to have. Quite, yeah, much more, like several hundreds of them. So this, this situation with human rights in Russia is now like worse than it was in the Soviet times after 1953. And people notice this, and this is quite dramatic, and people notice it because of the internet. Now, why Putin doesn't just shut it down? Uh, because he's smart enough not to do this. Still, uh, Russia has a 100 million internet population, over 100, 110 million Russians use the internet, and only about 20% of them use it as a well primary source of political information. The others use the internet for social networks, games, Tinder, whatever, sports. Uh, Putin doesn't want to antagonize himself with this apolitical internet population. So he realizes that if he orders to shut down YouTube, he will make millions of parents angry who watch cartoons with their children at night. Uh, 
So, and this might become quite dangerous for him. So that's, that's why, well, he's in full control of the message on the television. And he also tries to push his message through on the internet. He invests a lot in, 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 in internet propaganda, in trolls and bots. I mean, America has been very concerned about Russia, Russian troll farms in 2016 and after. They are nothing. So they, they were just nothing. So the, the, the total amount of, you know, like Russian disinformation in English language that has been produced, that is produced over a year is much less than the total amount of their inform disinformation that they produce in a day on the domestic market. So domestic market is, of course, much more important for them. So they, they try to increase the level of divide noise so that the signal becomes indistinguishable. So that someone who uses internet to read the latest news about the latest soccer game, if they would like to dive in into political news uh, on the internet, they only will become a feeling that it's something so dirty with so many, you know, like... Um, uh, aggression and harassment and hate speech and everything like so so unpleasant around it. So they better keep use keep using internet for sport news, but for political news they will return back and switch on the television again. That that's their strategy and that's quite successful. And that, that we see, that we do a lot of polling ourselves, we see that like the political segment of Russian internet is rather small. It is growing, but it's really very challenging for us to, to reach the new audiences and to grow it. Because, yeah, Putin's operations online are also quite efficient. He, well, he has enormous, unlimited resources. He invests billions in his internet propaganda and disinformation uh, campaigns. So this is this is this is quite a competition for us. But but still, so and that's the answer to, uh, to your question. So YouTube is technically illegal in Russia since September 2015. Back in 2015, they decided not to comply with the Russian personal data domestication law. And since 2015, many new you know, laws on internet censorship has been passed, and Google doesn't comply with all of them. So technically, according to Russian law, it has to be it had to be blacklisted back in 2015. But technologically, they could only shut down the whole. Google with all its services or nothing. And they prefer to blackmail. So they prefer to like every month, they issue some kind of press release that Google is found in violation of this and this and this. And if they don't want to comply, they will immediately be like blacklisted like next month. And also they try to communicate like, okay, if you take down this video and this video and, and this content we don't like, we probably will not punish you. So that's really bluff and blackmail. So far, not successful, but actually, that's the most single important thing 
that the West could do to support democracy in Russia and in many countries like Russia. The West could make it like very clear to Google, Facebook and the likes, to the tech platforms, that they don't have to cave to censorship requests in countries like Russia, Turkey, and so on and so on. Otherwise, this will indeed become like really a very major blow for freedom fighters in those countries. Yeah, I really agree. It's such an inc a critical space for sure. Um, we're getting low on time and um, Jim always likes to ask a very thoughtful final question. So I'm going to turn it over to Jim to do that. Well, thank you very much, um, Andrea. That's uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a different kind of question uh, than I normally ask. Um, but it's because you are such a unique um, uh, operator and observer and participant uh, engaging in a very historic time in Russia. And all of us uh, here in the West and, and here in the United States particularly, um, we have been very impressed and worry about you. Uh, we worry about Navalny. We worry about what you're doing. And we've seen um, we've seen certainly in our media, um, it's, it's hard to miss the big demonstrations that happened across Russia when, when, when appropriate and the police response. And we've had our own demonstrations here in the United States. So, uh, so there's a, um, you know, there's a the feeling of solidarity in a lot of ways. I will speak for myself, having done our demonstrations, certainly not along the lines that you all have had to endure there, but I, 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 but I, I want to ask, we have Navalny, he's now in jail, he's been in jail, he's been on a hunger strike, he came close to death, it sounded like. Um, what message does he have for the West from his jail cell? What message does he have to the American people if he were on this podcast? Um, and, but, but what would he say? You, you as a spokesman in a lot of ways, as his chief of staff, what would he say to the American people from his jail cell? What's his, what words does he have for us? Well, actually, I spent almost two weeks in Washington, D.C., talking to many think tanks and policymakers and decision makers and politicians. And I had kind of a clear message from <coughs> Alexei Navalny that I had to deliver. Uh, I came on a mission. I came on the eve of the summit because I had something to say. And my message was actually quite clear and simple. First, there is no such thing as a reset button. Unfortunately, that's very bad news for the world, but we have had enough experience with Vladimir Putin and we know that he only understands the language of power and strength. Every attempt to negotiate, to build bridges, to push the reset button, button he only understands as a sign of weakness. He, every time in the West they talk about direct lines, he is reassured that the red lines do not exist when they don't when they talk about them and don't do anything. And he feels reassured that he could do whatever he wants and he could walk away with whatever he wants and, and nothing will actually happen. Uh, no punishment, no repercussion. And this will this could become very dangerous for Alexei Navalny, for our movement, and so on. So once again, American leadership has said, if something bad happens, if Alexei Navalny does, dies in jail, there will be consequences. Well, we don't want to wait 
for Alex Navalny to die, to see if actually there are real consequences or not. This is wrong approach. Putin has committed enough crimes. Putin has committed enough to be punished like right now, according to international laws, according to existing American legal frameworks, such as the American Magnitsky Act and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And here, so the order of actions must be reversed. You have to, to, to create leverage against Putin by doing something and then negotiating with him about like his future uh, behavior. And our uh, suggestion is very plain and simple. Go after his money. So Putin is probably the most corrupt government official in the world, one of the richest men in the world. You hardly could find a bank account labeled Vladimir Putin somewhere. But of course, we are all very good and aware about the bank accounts of his friends, his classmates, schoolmates, his uh, Dutch of neighbors and so on, who for some reason all became billionaires. And we know, and it's beyond reasonable doubt, the majority of these so-called Russian oligarchs are just nominee holders for Putin's assets. Go after this money, freeze these accounts, impose personal sanctions, and every Russian voter will applause to it because actually no one likes those oligarchs and everyone understands that those money, that, that, that money is actually being stolen from Russian taxpayers. Arrest this money. And this will make Putin much more handsome partner for future negotiations. Otherwise, he will continue to act as a three-year-old three-year-old child testing the borders, always testing the borders, always seeing that there are no red lines, that, you know, becoming more and more reassured in his hopefully wrong belief that all his Western counterparts are just hypocrites. That they have to say these words about rule of law, human rights, democracy, freedom, uh, free press, and so on. But they need his oil and gas so desperately that they are ready to deal with him and to negotiate behind closed doors. And those words about human rights, he could tolerate it. Maybe if they have to participate in this kind of circus with their waters, okay, sure. But then we close the doors, we sit and talk, and we make a new deal on oil and gas and everything, and everyone's happy. That's Putin's perception of the world. I hope it is wrong. It is wrong. But so far, the West has done a lot to help Putin become even more <clears throat> uh, assured that this perception of him is correct. And this actually poses a great danger to the world by itself. That was much. really that wonderful. Was yeah. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I think, you know, more and more um, people in policy circles are talking. I mean, obviously the president Biden and his administration has raised the anti-corruption issue, treating corruption as a national security issue. I think there's more and more talk about taking the next step, I think, to, to 
to home in on the oligarchs and people around Putin and going after the money. And I, I, I don't, I, I have a sense that that some of those ideas are gaining traction and, and we'll see where they go. So those messages and hearing from the people who are on the ground, who are fighting the fight from the front lines and kind of where they think the leverage points are, I think is really powerful and really valuable in thinking through how the, what the, what the West role is in supporting the people who are fighting um, for the issues uh, that you are. So really, really powerful, really valuable, and just a huge thank you for, again, taking the time uh, fresh off a transatlantic overnight flight um, for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it, and we hope um, that we get to continue this conversation um, in, in the coming months and year. And we'll also, you know, we'll all, we're watching events very closely. We'll be watching the election in September very closely. Um, and of course, as like Jim said, thinking of you all um, and sending, you know, our best wishes um, and, and hoping that you all stay safe as well.